0: And good afternoon, you're listening to Ken Hudnall, this is the Ken Hudnall Show, coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas, gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today, September 26th, 269th day of the year, 96 days remain until this year's over with, and I know a lot of folks can't come too soon. Today's Better Breakfast Day, Johnny Appleseed Day, National Chimichanga Day, National Family Day, National Pancake Day, Alpaca Day, Dominion Status Day, European Day of Languages, Human Resource Professional Day, International Day for the Total Elimination of Nuclear Weapons, as if that would ever happen. Love Note Day. Lumberjack Day, National Amanda Day, National Compliance Officer Day, National Day of Praise and Worship, National Dumpling Day, National Harry Day, that's a masculine name of Sanskrit origin with deep religious significance, that's H-A-R-I, Harry. National Key Lime Pie Day, National Law Enforcement Suicide Awareness Day, National Mesothelioma Awareness Day, National Situational Awareness Day, Shamu the Whale Day, and World Day of Migrants and Refugees. As if they needed a special day. Alrighty. And don't think I'm anti-migrant and refugee. There are times that's needed. But right now, this country is being inundated with a lot of folks of military age who are running from military service in their own country. And our illustrious leaders open the door and say, Come on down. And a previous president apparently promised them, according to what I'm told, $50,000 each just to come here and a job and health care and a home. How about those of us born here and served this country? I had our congresswoman tell me, I don't have time for the problems of disabled veterans. I'm working with undocumented immigrants. That wasn't what she was elected for. Okay. 46 B.C. Julius Caesar dedicates the Temple of Venus Genetrix, filling a valley made at the Battle of Pharsalus, 715, Ragenfried uh, defeats Seth Theodold at the Battle of Compagni. Uh, 1087, William II's crowned king of England and until 1100. 1212, the Golden Bull of Sicily is issued to confirm hereditary royal title in Bohemia for the Primislid dynasty. The Golden Bull of Sicily uh, was a decree issued by Emperor Frederick II in Basel on September 26, 1212 12, that confirmed the royal title obtained by the I of Bohemia in 1198, declared him and his heirs kings of, kings of Bohemia. That kingship signified the exceptional status of Bohemia within the Holy Roman Empire, but by the time this came around, it was not really holy certainly not Roman, and uh, wasn't much of an empire. 1345, Friso-Hollandic Wars. Frisians defeat Holland in the Battle of Warns. 1371, Serbian-Turkish Wars. Ottoman Turks fought against the Serbian army at the Battle of Maritza. 1423, Hundred Years' War. French army defeats the English in the Battle of La Bucinari, which was a rarity, let me tell you. At one point in time, France, I according to what I read, adopted the white flag as their national flag because they surrendered so often. 1493, Pope Alexander VI issues the papal Bull, Dudum Sequitum, to the Spanish, extending the grant of New Lands he made them in uh, Intercaterra. 1580, Francis Drake finishes his circumnavigation of the earth in Plymouth, England sixteen eighty seven Saldamorean War. The Parthenion and the Parth- one more time the Parthenon in Athens uses a gunpowder depot by the Ottoman garrisons partially destroyed after being bombarded during the siege of the Acropolis by Venetian forces. sixteen eighty eight City Council of Amsterdam votes to support William of Orange's invasion of England, which proclaimed the glorious revolution. 1777, American Revolution, British troops occupy Philadelphia. 1789, George Washington appoints Thomas Jefferson, the first U.S. Secretary of State. 1799, war of the Second Coalition, French troops defeat austro russian forces, leading to the collapse of Suvorov's campaign. 1810, a new act of succession is adopted by the Reichstag of the Estates and Jean-Baptiste Bernadotte becomes the heir to the Swedish throne. 1905, Albert Einstein publishes the third of his Anus Moralbo's papers, introducing a special theory of relativity. There's a, a uh, new theory of relativity these days. Your relatives get you wealth. You just have to know how to work them. Uh. 1907, four months after the 1907 Imperial Conference in New Zealand and Newfoundland are promoted from colonies to dominions within the British Empire. 1910, Indian journalist Swatashabhavamani Ramakrishna Feli is arrested for after publishing criticism of the government of Travancore and is exiled. 1914, U.S. Federal Trade Commission is established by the Federal Trade Commission Act. 1917, World War I, the Battle of Polygon Woods begins. 1918, World War I, the Meuse-Argonne Offensive begins, which would last until the total surrender of German forces. 1923, the German government accepts the occupation of the Ruhr. 1933, as gangster Machine Gun Kelly surrenders to the FBI, he shouts out, Don't shoot, G-Men! This becomes a nickname for the FBI agents. Uh, 1934. Uh, These days, they're closer to the Keystone cops than they are the G Men. Okay. 1934, the ocean liner RMS Queen Mary is launched. I spent a couple of nights on the Queen Mary. 1936, Spanish Civil War. Luis companies reshuffles the Generalitat de Catalunya with the Marxist PUM and anarcho-syndicate CNT joining the government. 1942, Holocaust. Senior SS official August Frank issues a memorandum detailing how the Jews should be evacuated. Speaking of the Nazis... In the Canadian um, government, there was a meeting. It was Zelensky from Ukraine, and some folks in his entourage, and Trudeau, and there was one man pointed out and celebrated as a hero in World War Two in Germany and Ukraine. And he's given a standing ovation. And it came out, yes, he had served in Germany in the military and in Ukraine in the military. He was a member of the SS. Trudeau uh, can't help putting his foot in his mouth. He's getting as bad as um, our president. 1950, Korean War. United Nations Troops recaptured Seoul from North Korean forces. 1953, rationing of sugar in the UK ends. That rationing started during World War II. 1954, the Japanese rail ferry Toya Maru sinks during a typhoon in the Sagaru Strait in Japan, killing 1172. 1959, Typhoon Vera, the strongest typhoon in Japan in recorded history, makes landfall. Kills 4,580 people and leaves nearly 1.6 million homeless. 1960, in Chicago, the first televised debate takes place between presidential candidates Richard M. Nixon and John F. Kennedy. 1969, Abbey Road, the last recorded album by the Beatles, is released on this date. 1973, Concord makes its first non-stop crossing at Atlantic in record-breaking time. 1978 78, Air Caribbean, flight date 309, crashes in residential Las Casas in San Juan, Puerto Rico, kills six. 1980, at the Oktoberfest terror attack in Munich, 13 people are killed and 211 are injured. 1981, Nolan Ryan sets a major league record by throwing his fifth no-hitter. no-hitter. 1983, Soviet Air Force officer Stanislav Petrov identifies a report of an incoming nuclear missile as a computer error and... Not an American first strike. Otherwise, the Soviets would have retaliated. 1983 also saw Australia too win the America's Cup, ending the New York yacht clubs 132-year domination of the race. 1984, the UK and China agreed to a transfer of sovereignty over Hong Kong to take place in 1997. 1992, a Nigerian Air Force Lockheed 130 Hercules clashes in Jigbo uh, Lagos, killing 159. 1994, Yakovlev Yak-40 crashes into a river near Vanavara, in Russia kills 24. 1997, a Garuda uh, Indonesia Airbus A300 crashes near Median Airport, killed 234. 1997, an earthquake strikes the Italian regions of Umbria and the Marchi, causing part of the Basilica of St. Francis at Assisi to uh, collapse. In 2000, in a globalization protest in Prague, there was about 20,000 protesters turned violent during the IMF and World Bank summits, where our betters meet to decide what we're all going to do. 2000 also saw the MS Express Semina sink off Paros in the Aegean Sea, killing 80 passengers. 2002, the overcrowded Singalese ferry MV Lejula capsizes off the coast of the Gambia, killing more than 1,000. 2005, the PBS Kids Channel shut down replaced by a joint network with Comcast called Sprout, which I guess went on to become a grocery chain. 2008, Swiss pilot and inventor Yevz Rossi becomes the first person to fly a jet engine powered wing across the English Channel. 2009, Typhoon Katsana hits the Philippines, China, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, and Thailand, kills 700. 2010, the Philippine bar exam bombing occurred near the De La Salle University in Taft Avenue, Manila, injuring 47 people. And in 2014, a mass kidnapping occurs in Iguala, Mexico. There's always something going on. Well, having covered this information, we've been talking about unsolved murders, and we talked about three of them yesterday. We're going to talk about a couple of more today. You no, know, time them all. This is one of the US's leading over the counter remedies for pain and fever. And we've been accustomed when it comes from our pharmacies, uh, whether over the counter or a uh, prepared prescription, we really don't question the safety. However, in September 1982, people in Chicago started dropping dead after taking the normally harmless drug Tylenol. Began with. Billy Mary Kellerman woke up on Wednesday morning in 1982, and she certainly felt under the weather. Parents did what many do when hearing sore throat complaints from their children, gave her extra strength Tylenol to ease the pain before it was time for her to head off to school in the Chicago suburb of Elk Grove Village, in Illinois. She went into the bathroom and closed the door and. After a few minutes, her father heard a sudden loud thump. The uh, father got got the door open and found his daughter on the floor. Called the paramedics who tried to save her, but nothing helped. Twelve-year-old girls pronounced dead at ten o'clock in the morning. Across town, a 27-year-old postal worker named Adam... Janice woke up sick enough to call off work, picked up his kids from morning preschool and stopped by a pharmacy in another Chicago suburb to get some uh, medicine, fixed his children's lunch, and then prescribed himself two Tylenol and took a nap. A few minutes later, he collapsed in his kitchen. Medics suspected a heart attack despite his young age and presuming uh, what presumed to be good health. Nobody could have known that Mary and Adam's death were linked, despite the two never having met. that would be the first of seven victims killed by extra-strength Tylenol capsules poisoned with potassium cyanide. Now, devastated family members gathered in mourning at Adam Janice's home. Dead man's younger brother, um, 25-year-old Stanley, felt chronic back pain flaring up and Stanley's 19 year old wife Teresa had a headache brought on by the stress of the day so the couple both swallowed uh, some Tylenol from Adam's bathroom after a little while Stanley collapsed and shortly thereafter Teresa collapsed Thomas Kim medical director at the Northwest Community Hospital's intensive care unit it had been the one uh, signed Adams' paperwork indicating he had suffered a heart attack. And he was about to leave for home when he heard that more members of the Janus family were being rushed to his unit. He later told reporters of his shock at these sudden developments. He'd met Stanley just a few hours earlier. I've been talking to this six foot healthy guy, he said. When he learned that Stanley's wife was also ill, he, he knew he was dealing with something more sinister than a heart attack. Same day that Mary Kellerman and Adam Janis died, September twenty ninth, nineteen eighty two, twenty seven year old Mary Lynn Reiner suffered the same fate. Three forty five p.m. Mary, who had given birth just days earlier, took some Tylenol. She collapsed and died shortly after that. Well, and if, as investigators searched Janis' house, another woman, thirty one year old Mary McFarlane, told her coworkers at the Lloyd Bell shop and. Lombard, she had a headache and went into a back room to take some Tylenol. She also collapsed a few minutes later and died. In hindsight, it's easy to see Tylenol as a common thread. But at the time, investigators uh, didn't have that uh, luxury. You said it's over the counter medication was so commonplace that it didn't, just didn't jump out as a cause of death. Dr. Kim uh, got back involved. He realized uh, that the victims all showed symptoms of potassium cyanide poisoning, abdominal pains, dizziness, and heart failure. See, cyanide robs the heart and nerve cells of oxygen. Muscles seize up, the body convulses, and the heart rapidly weakens until it stops completely. Well, blood tests confirmed Kim's diagnosis, and as he later told reporters, he paced his office trying to work out how these disparate people had all been exposed to the same toxin. By the end of Wednesday, 12 hours after little Mary Kellerman was pronounced dead, two suburban firefighters who had been monitoring chatter on the fire radios they kept in their... uh, Holmes started comparing notes on the phone. (coughs) They shared their theory with Dr. Kim, who knew the Janus had taken Tylenol, but hadn't known about the other victims. Authorities retrieved the red and white bottles from all the victims' homes and realized they came from the same lot and had the same expiration dates. Nicholas Pichos, an investigator for the Cook County Medical Examiner's Office, had studied cyanide at a college biology class. He and Chief Medical Examiner Edmund Donahue were discussing the murders over the phone when Donahue remembered that cyanide was a distinctive almond smell. He opened the bottles and said he poured them out and nothing looked out of the ordinary. Everything was capsulized. But as he was pouring them out of the bottle, he could tell it was a strong smell of almonds. He opened a second bottle and said, you know, the first one smells like the second one, almonds. Well, lab tests confirmed that whoever was behind the tapering had made a, a a gunless game of Russian roulette. In each bottle, a handful of the capsules had been emptied and replaced with lethal doses of cyanide. Between 5 and 7 micrograms of cyanide is fatal, and the, the contaminated capsules contained as much as 65 milligrams of poison. Several thousand times more than a fatal dose. And the people who consume these capsules typically collapsed within minutes. Well, by Thursday, just one day after the first death, the media was warning all Chicago and eventually all the country about the Tylenol connection. Chicago police, worried residents might miss the news, went through the streets broadcasting the message over loudspeakers. Investigators with the U.S. Food and Drug Administration warned uh, consumers to avoid buying Tylenol and not to take any of the head in their house. Pharmacy owners pulled the drug from off shelves, and Johnson & Johnson, the parent firm for Tylenol maker McNeil Consumer Products, offered refunds to panicked customers. Everything went into overdrive. And if that wasn't bad enough, the body count grew. Friday, October 1st, 35-year-old Paula Prince was found in her Chicago apartment. She had last been seen at a Walgreen on Northwell Street on Wednesday. She was a flight attendant. Landed in at O'Hare on a flight from Las Vegas. According to surveillance photos, she bought a bottle of Tylenol about 9.30 that evening. Across town, doctors are on the verge of tying tainted Tylenol capsules to all the sudden deaths. Well, she died shortly after taking the pills, but her body wasn't discovered for two days. Her sister was supposed to meet her for dinner, and Paula answering her phone according to a fellow flight attendant who later commented uh, about the situation. According to Richard Brizek, superintendent of the Chicago Police Department, Paula Prince went to the bathroom to remove her makeup and while she was in there she took a couple of Tylenol. Something we all do. Tylenol bottle still sitting open on the vanity. Took it in the bathroom by the time she got to the the doorway, she was dead. Well, as panicked as Chicago was, the rest of the nation could take comfort knowing the attack appeared to be isolated. Until it wasn't. A few days into the investigation, news spread that other victims were falling ill nationwide from various poisons including rat poison and hydrochloric acid. Authorities reinvestigated investigated and found these incidents were Caused by opportunistic copycats. It seemed that anyone with a grudge was jumping aboard the pill tainting bandwagon. Some branched out to new methods, including sharp pens and Halloween candy, leading some communities to ban trick or treating altogether. FDA later tallied more than 270 different incidents of copycat tampering. As soon as the method and means was pinpointed in the Tylenol poisoning cases, the police um, expressed confidence that the uh, perpetrator would be swiftly apprehended. They always expressed confidence. But that didn't happen. Five days after the deaths began, when Tally reached 7, Illinois Attorney General Tyrone Foner announced that the police were searching for a man who had been arrested in August for shoplifting Tylenol. I mean, it seemed a promising lead on the surface, but uh, he tempered public expectations. He said, I'm not quite sure what to think. Sometimes people steal anything, I He used to have had, uh, been stealing Tylenol in order to just steal it. Shoplifter's story made big headlines, but uh, was quickly discounted. Turned out he'd been behind bars since his August arrest. This uh, shoplifting uh, lead was just one of several fruitless leads that were pursued. Investigators also sought to interview disgruntled employees with both Johnson and & Johnson and McNeil, that's the company that made Tylenol. They took notes on tips about suspicious-looking customers. One pharmacy employee was arrested after police set up a got a tip. He kept cyanide in his house. The uh, man was eventually cleared when uh, further investigation showed the supposed cyanide turned out to be a non-toxic cleaning agent. 100 investigators, including uh, those who'd helped build cases against serial killer Richard Speck and John Wayne Gatesy, joined forces to try to solve the mystery. Investigators lead theories that uh, there's more than one capsule tamperer. Hypothesis uh, suggested because some of the capsules had clearly been modified, while the spiking of others was far better disguised. But even the nation's top sleuths came up empty-handed. One of the more promising early suspects was a man named uh, Roger Arnold, who'd worked alongside the father of one of the victims at the Jewel Food Store Warehouse. Arnold, who was 48 at the time, was arrested in October 1982 after a tip-off he had signed in his house. Police interrogated Arnold for um, three days, after which they dismissed uh, any link between him and the Tylenol deaths. He considered his life ruined, though, and wanted revenge against the secret informant. January 1983, uh, he targeted a Chicago man he believed had directed investigators his way. He shot and killed John Stanista, a 46-year-old uh, computer consultant, father of three, who police say was never an informant. Arnold lamented that death a number of years later. He said, I killed a man, a perfectly innocent person. He said that in from prison in nineteen ninety six. He said I had choices, I could have walked away. He served fourteen years of a thirty year prison sentence and died in two thousand eight. John Stanisau had been referred to as the eighth Tylenol victim. Well the most likely break in the case came courtesy of a brazen extortionist. Within two weeks of the deadly outbreak, Tylenol's uh, Makers Johnson and Johnson got a letter promising to stop the killing for one million dollars. The letter, immediately given to the FBI, was traced to James Lewis in New York City. He didn't ask for the money to be paid to himself, but into the account of a businessman who he claimed had swindled him and his wife. Well, Lewis eventually served twelve years for extortion. Never been directly tied to the Tylenol deaths, though. Nevertheless, he still routinely appears as a front runner on lists of suspects largely because nobody else has emerged to replace him. There are certain suspicious factors, though. one point in his checkered past, Lewis and his wife, Leanne, had imported pill-making machines from India. And he, when he and his wife had first moved to Chicago, they lived under the false names of Robert Nancy Richardson. And additionally, Lewis had been charged with bludgeoning and dismembering a Kansas City man. Charges were dismissed after a judge ruled that his arrest and seizure of his property were illegal. Recently in 2009, Federal Authorities uh, searched Lewis's home, hoping to uh, discover new clues. Didn't find anything. 2010, he published a novel titled Poison, A Doctor's Dilemma. He certain people dying after unknown drinking, uh, unknowingly drinking poisoned water. Two years later, the FBI took a DNA sample from Ted Kaczynski, the man famously dubbed the Unabomber for mailing 16 homemade bombs that killed three people and injured more than 20 others between 1978 and 1995. He's been in jail since 1996. Zisk was on the police radar because he had lived with his parents in suburban Chicago during the Tylenol murders. Well, as you might guess, every possible lead that was released, revealed to the press led to big headlines, but nothing more. The only solid progress ever made in the case involved packaging. In days of the death, law, the legislatures proposed new laws requiring manufacturers to seal drug containers. Little foil well, seals are commonplace now, but prior to Mary Kellerman collapsing in her bathroom, all that stood between a malevolent would-be tamper and a stranger's medicine was a twist-off lid and a wad of cotton. Fisos, one of the original investigators, recently admitted that the killer remains nameless after all these years. He said, it's frustrating for everybody, more so for the families who were victims not being able to put this person or persons behind bars. Well, I mean, frankly, he could, or she, could strike again. There's never been any determination of who did anything. And the the problem is that he seemed to have a very thorough knowledge not only of poisons, but of uh, the packaging of medication. But child-proof caps, as they're called, are becoming more uh, restrictive. I had one the other day. I finally had to get out the pliers to get the top off of it. Well, from time and all, let's go to the jean Benet Ramsey murder, which took place in nineteen ninety-six. The uh, death of jean Bonet Ramsey was uh, a multifaceted enigma that would defy explanation. You know, a six-year-old beauty queen, jean Bonnet Ramsey was destined for stardom. Everybody knew that especially her parents, John and Patsy. They were convinced of it. Former Miss West Virginia herself, Patsy Ramsey, was determined her pretty little daughter should follow in her glamorous footsteps. In a cruel twist of fate, John Bonet would be buried in the same sparkly dress she'd competed in. The details of her death and the mysterious circumstances surrounding it have uh, made it one of the U.S.'s most notorious unsolved murder cases. From a young age, John Bonet was entered into beauty pageants. Dressed in flashy outfits embellished with sequins or other eye catching decorations, she would stand center stage and performed her well practiced routines. Sunburst National Pageant, Little Miss Colorado, Little Miss Clairvoy Colorado, State All Star Kids, Cover Girl, America's Royal Miss. John Bonet competed in all the beauty pageants. And in many instances, she won them. Just two weeks before she was Kill, she had been crowned Little Miss Christmas. But a little, the world remembers Jabonet with bleached blonde hair and a face full of makeup, but there was a whole lot more to this bright little girl. She excelled in mathematics, fascinated by nature, joined chatting with the Ramsey's gardener, Brian Scott, while he worked. You recalled later, I remember how intelligent Jabonet was, and that's why I never talked to her like she was a little kid. Ramsay family. Six-year-old John Bonet, her nine-year-old brother, Burke, and Johnny Patsy lived at uh, 755 15th Street in Boulder, Colorado. Their home was an impressive brick house in the toodle revival style on a tree-lined avenue. December 1994, 2,000 people visited the Ramsey home for a guided tour organized by the Boulder Historical Society. John Ramsey was president of Access Graphics, a successful computer company. Patsy was a former pageant star turned housewife. John Ramsey had three grown-up children from a previous marriage: Elizabeth, John, Andrew, and Melinda. 1992, Elizabeth died in a car crash, only 82, only <laughs> 82, only 22 years old. To the outside world, the Ramsey family seemed to epitomize the American dream: A beautiful family an exquisite house of vacation uh, home in picturesque Clarevo, Michigan. And as Christmas 1996 approached, Ramsey sent out their annual gre- uh, greeting card detailing the things the family had done during the year, along with a festive photo. That was the last card they would send as a family of four. Well, on Christmas Eve 1996, the Ramseys went to a party given by their old friends, Fleet and Priscilla White. The family had left about 10 p.m. and since we were traveling to their vacation home in Clairvaux the next morning and wanted to get an early start, the whole family went straight to bed packing for the trip and waiting until the morning. About 5.45 a.m., Patsy woke up and found a three-page handwritten note on the spiral staircase that led from the master bedroom to the kitchen. And it said, Mr. Ramsey, listen carefully. We're a group of individuals who represent a small foreign faction. We respect your business, but not the country that it serves. This time we have your daughter in our possession. She's safe and unharmed, and if you want her to see 1997, you have to follow our instructions to the letter. You will withdraw $118,000 from your account, $100,000 of that and $100 bills, remaining $18,000 and $20 bills. And make sure you bring in an adequate size attaché to the bank. When you get home, you put the money in a brown paper bag. I'll call you between 8 and 10 a.m. tomorrow to instruct you on delivery. And the delivery will be exhausting, so I advise you to be rested. We monitor you getting the money early. We might call you early to arrange an early delivery for the money and early delivery pickup for your daughter. Any deviation from my uh, instructions will result in immediate execution of your daughter. You'll also be denied her remains for proper burial. The two gentlemen watching over your daughter do not particularly like you, so I advise you not to provoke them. And if you talk to anybody about your situation, such as the police, the FBI, well, this will result in your daughter being beheaded. If we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. If you alert bank authorities, she dies. If the money is in any way marked or tampered with, she dies. be scanned for electronic devices, and if any are found, she dies. You can try to deceive us, but be warned we're familiar with law enforcement countermeasures and tactics. You stand a 99% chance of killing your daughter if you try to outsmart us. Follow our instructions, you stand a hundred percent chance of getting her back. You and your family are under constant scrutiny as well as the authorities. Don't try to grow a brain, John. You're not the only fat cat around, so don't think that killing would be difficult. Don't underestimate us, John. Use that good southern common sense of yours. It's up to you now, John. And it's signed Victory SBTC. After reading the note, Patsy rushed upstairs to find jean wood wasn't in her bedroom. Wasn't in the bathroom? She was gone. Disregarding the threatening conditions laid down in the note, Patsy called 911 to report a kidnapping. Then she called several friends, including Fleet and Priscilla White, and begged them to come over immediately for moral support. First officer on the scene, Rick French, was unable to find any sign of forced entry and noted the House security system hadn't been deactivated the night before. Contrary to normal protocol, the house wouldn't cordoned off to preserve potential evidence. Police officers and the Ramseys and their friends roamed freely through the rooms. Several people reported to have cleaned up in the house just for something to do. On the kitchen table was a bowl of heavy pineapple with a heavy flashlight, though neither was thought important. The bowl, of course, was subsequently washed, removing any possible evidence. And at the designated time for the kidnapper to call, there was no phone call. About 2 p.m., an officer told John and Fleet to conduct another search of the house. John took the lead and they headed toward the basement. Near the back was a small white door leading to a wine cellar that had been ignored during the initial search. His officer French had only been looking for exit or entry points to the house. Well, when they opened that white door, John and Fleet found John Bonet's lifeless body. She was lying on her back with her arms raised above her head. There was a blanket over her body and her mouth was sealed shut with duct tape. White cord was looped around her neck and, uh, and wrist. Attached to the cord was a makeshift garrote, constructed from a piece of uh, paintbrush. She had also had a bloated the head, and there were marks on her face that could have been made by a stun gun or by a piece of electric train track. Part of the basement was uh, devoted to an electric train layout. Well, as soon as John Ramsey saw his daughter, he tore the tape from her mouth, scooped her up, and rushed upstairs with her to the living room. Unfortunately, this act would prove extremely harmful to the investigation. The body shouldn't have been touched, let alone moved, until the medical examiner arrived at the scene. In fact, moving the body made it harder to determine the cause of death. By this stage, the crime scene had been severely compromised. An autopsy concluded JonBenet had been asphyxiated. She had also suffered blunt force trauma to the head, leading to cranial cerebral trauma. Although there's no evidence of conventional rapes, sexual assault couldn't be ruled out. Undigested pineapples found in her stomach, indicating she'd eaten the fruit within two hours of her death. However, according to Patsy, uh, John Bonet had not eaten pineapple that day. She gone straight to bed after the White's party. Further investigation revealed the other half of the paintbrush among Patsy's art supplies in the basement. In the basement itself, a small window had been smashed. Well, this initially seemed suspicious to everybody. John said he'd broken it months earlier after accidentally locking himself out and on the window sill was a layer of undisturbed dust and dirt as well as an intact spider web suggesting it was not the entry exit point for an intruder. There was a single identified footprint detected near where John Bonnet's body was found, but absolutely no footprints were found in the snow outside the window. Now, the ransom note was the most intriguing piece of evidence in the case been written using a pen and notepad that came from the kitchen left draft of that note was discovered in the middle of the pad that was addressed to Mr. And Mrs.. The writer clearly changed his, their mind and addressed the real ransom note to Mr. Ramsey abnormally longed for a ransom note that the man raised a number of questions evidently came from the killer but did it point to a member of the Ramsey family or an intruder Was it real or was it a hoax? Well, the letter incorporated references that only the Ramsey's would be likely to know. For example, the amount of $118,000 was the same amount as uh, John Ramsey's recent bonus. And the demand of $118,000 is a small amount for a kidnapper to demand, especially considering how wealthy the Ramsey's were. My well, next son Executive Sidney Reso was abducted in 1992. The ransom was $15.5 million. The letter was signed with the acronym SBTC. Some detectives the theorize that could have been reference to Subic Bay where John Ramsey spent some time during his naval career. Mark McClish, a retired deputy, United States Marshal, and authored a 2001 book, I Know You're Lying, Detecting Deception Through Statement Analysis. theorized the initial stood for Saved by the Cross. According to Reverend Stephen Sauer, an assistant professor of theological studies at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles, saved by the cross is a statement of faith that has its roots in a number of Christian religions. Also, in the note, the writer threatens to behead Jean Bonnet. And this is an exceptionally violent, uncommon threat, which many experts believe point to a man being involved. But a number of experts have claimed the note had a number of feminine touches, such as, I advise you to be rested. Experts found at least five other examples of what they referred to as paternalistic language. The writer or writers purports to be from a foreign faction, but they use American quotes and prose style that was distinctly American. Author to note misspells words such as business or possession. Yet, can use and spell correctly more complex words such as countermeasures, deviation, and attaché. The writer also mimics quotes from American movies. Repeated threats, the girl dies, comes from a 1971 thriller, Dirty Harry. Well, don't try to grow a brain is not only American dress slang, but a direct quote from the 1994 thriller, Speed. Another strange aspect of the note was the changing from we to I, as well as from Mr. Ramsey to John, which could imply that more than one person was involved in writing the note. Whoever wrote the ransom must have detailed knowledge of the family's life. Moreover, they must have been able to move easily around the house in the dark and find the tucked away wine cellar in the basement. And running experts from the Colorado Bureau of Investigation decided John Ramsey didn't write the note. But their analysis regarding Patsy was inconclusive. During the literature investigation, 73 suspects' handwriting would be analyzed to discover who could have written it. Convinced the police were regarding them as prime suspects in the murder of their daughter, both John and Patsy hired separate lawyers and refused to speak to the police. They felt they had already told everything they knew and couldn't provide any more insights into the case. In March 1997, John Ramsey's two adult children, John Andrew and Melinda, were cleared as suspects. April 30, 1997, the Ramsey's finally agreed to separate formal interviews. They only agreed on the condition they received police reports so that they could prepare for the questions. To the police, of course, their reluctance to cooperate seemed to conflict with their earlier statements. They'd do whatever was necessary to aid the investigation. Throughout her short life, John Bonnet had a frequent tendency to wet the bed. For this, cast further suspicion on John and Patsy, as bedwetting is often a response to child abuse. Underwear that John Bonet was wearing when he body was found was stained with urine, and pull up diapers were hanging out of the closet outside John Bonet's bedroom. theory circulated that Patsy accidentally killed John Bonet in a fit of rage following a bed reading accident, causing Patsy to scoff. Anybody really think I'd kill my child because she wet the bed? Over the ensuing years, John and Patsy Ramsey, rem- Ramsey remained under a cloud of suspicion. Nineteen ninety eight, the Boulder Grand Jury voted to indict both parents on two counts of child abuse abuse resulting in the death of John Bonet. However, the Ramseys were never indicted because the district attorney Alex Hunter refused to sign the documents. Grand jury investigated the case between nineteen ninety eight and nineteen ninety nine. Witness who appeared before it, Linda Hoffman Pugh, was the Ramsey's housekeeper at the time of John Bonet's murder. Hoppin' Pugh voiced suspicions that uh, Patsy Ramsey was guilty of her daughter's murder, stating she argued with her often. Uh, according to uh, the housekeeper, I think she had multiple personalities. She'd be in a good mood and then she'd be cranky. Well, that's almost anybody. Um, Hoppin' Pugh maintained that the blanket John Bonet's body had been wrapped in most likely came from a clothes dryer near John Bonet's bedroom. Further evidence disclosed uh, during the grand jury included uh, four fibers that were found on the adhesive side of the sticky tape that was uh, placed over John Bonnet's mouth. Fibers were determined to be microscopically and chemically consistent with the sweater that Patsy wore on the night of the murder. However, tape had been removed uh, in the house and dropped on the floor, which could explain the presence of fibers. Following questioning by the grand jury, the authorities confirmed that Burke Ramsey, was nine at the time of uh, the, the murder, wasn't a suspect. However, John Bonnet's brother later became a favorite culprit among many Internet sleuths over the years. His seemingly light-hearted casual attitude during a taped interview with a child specialist on January 8, 1977, just two weeks after the death of his younger sister, caught the attention of a lot of folks. Former friends and neighbors at Ramsey, stated Burke had a temper and was jealous of the attention his sister got, leading to a report that Burke had been violent with JonBenet in the past. According to the family photographer, he hit her on the head with a golf club a year before. December 2016, Burke's lawyers filed a defamation lawsuit totaling $750 million against the CBS Corporation for speculating he was the killer in their television documentary, The Case of JonBenet Ramsey. 2016 TV interview, Burke said the murderer was some pedophile on the pageant audience. 2008, Boulder County DA Mary Lacey exonerated the entire Ramsey family on the basis their DNA did match unidentified male DNA found on two items of Jami'ne's clothing. Of course, this ruling came too late for Ms. Ramsey, who died of ovarian cancer in 2006 at just 49 years old. However, it transpired at the partial DNA profile that was obtained was a, contained a mixture of DNA belonging to John Bonet, an unknown male, and in one sample, a third unidentified person. Now, aside from family members, several other people were suspects in the case. Uh, housekeeper Linda Hoppin Pew and her handyman husband Mervyn came under suspicion when Apache told investigators the Hoppin Pews had money problems and once asked the Ramseys for a loan. It is possible that Lyndon knew how much John Ramsey had been awarded as a Christmas bonus. And Lyndon had a key to the house that was familiar with its layout. It's speculated if John Bonet had been killed by an intruder or intruders, they could have had a key since there was obviously signs of forced entry. However, Lyndon Mervyn were never accused of any crime. At the time of John Bonet's murder, Gary Oliva, a drifter with a History of sexually abusing minors lived just a few blocks away from the Ramsey home. When he was picked up on an unrelated charge, four years later, police found a photograph of John Bonet and a stun gun in his backpack. search of his apartment revealed an eerie shrine to John Bonet. Olivia came, who never lusted over the shrine, but instead would look at the pictures and cry. Police took Olivia to the stand, uh, station to question him about the murders. He was grilled for hours. Asked to provide DNA and writing samples and then released without any charges. Somebody who was convinced of Oliva's guilt was his own high school friend, Michael Vail, who uh, claimed just after John Bonet's murder, Leva called him in a panic and said he had hurt a little girl before hanging up. 2018 is reported that Leva sent a letter to Vail confessing the murder of John Bonet by accident. Oliva is currently serving a 10-year sentence for two counts of attempted sexual exploitation of a child. One count of a sexual exploitation of a child. As an early suspect, uh, there was Bill McReynolds, who played Santa Claus at private parties for the Ramses and confessed to being particularly fond of John Bonet. McReynolds and his wife Janet had been at the Ramsey home just two nights before John Bonet was murdered. Police were said to have discovered some eerie parallels between the McReynolds' lives and details in the murder case. December 26, 1974. McReynolds' nine-year-old daughter and another girl were abducted by an unknown assailant who molested the second girl. Within hours of this time, both girls were set free. Additionally, police found out that Janet had written a play in 1977 was about the torture and murder of 16-year-old Sylvia Likens who was found dead in a basement, much like Jean Monnet. McReynolds staunchly denied any involvement. Investigators eventually ruled him out. One electrician named Michael Helgoth Worked close to the Ramsey home and had a history of violence and sexual abuse. November 1996, Helgoth supposedly told a colleague he and a friend was going to make a large sum of money, 50000 to 80000 each. On uh, February 13, 1997, D.A. Alex Hunter announced uh, in a press conference they were narrowing down the list of suspects since only one would remain. Two days later, Helgoth was found dead by an apparent suicide. 2006, ex-school teacher John Mont Carr spotted investigators a lurid tale of how he had drugged and sexually assaulted John Bonnet before accidentally killing her. His ex-wife claimed he'd been with her in Alabama at the time of the murder, so that called into question his confession. In addition, Carr's statement conflicted with the evidence as the autopsy revealed no drugs. Carr's DNA didn't match any found on the body, and he was dropped as a suspect. December 2016, it was announced that further DNA testing was planned in hopes that uh, new technology could help crack the case. Well, the case of JonBenet Ramsey divided the nation and literally destroyed a family. Both the police and the public, either believing an intruder, broke into the Ramsey home and killed John Bonnet, or she was murdered by a family member. Thanks to the combination of a contaminated crime scene, a bungled inter- initial police investigation, and the dramatically opposed opinion of numerous experts and a definitive solution to the murder of John Ramsey seems uh, as elusive as ever. Well, on that note, we come to the end of today's show. We'll be back tomorrow. Once again, we'll be talking about a couple of unsolved murder cases. Till then, this is Ken Hodnell for the Ken Hodnell Show saying have a truly great evening.